You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Close to 3,000 people turned out for a fair organized by the Maui Filipino Chamber of Commerce. It was an effort to reach out to the Filipino community, a group that some say is culturally reluctant to ask for help. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio was there this weekend and joins us live. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Big crowd then, huh? It was a really huge event. When I, I got there at 8.30 and there was already lines outside of the door. And it's um, it was a little heavy going there. at the It was at the Lahaina Civic Center. It was right next to the burn zone. You can see the owl on the mountainous area. But going in, the first thing you see is a group of the Filipino community trying to get their passports. And um, anecdotally, most of them are from Lahaina, but it's a mixture of all folks across Maui. Some folks who didn't experience the Lahaina fires, they just wanted to get their passports renewed because they don't want to go to Oahu to get it. But once you go into the Civic Center, it was just hundreds of people trying to get clothes, trying to get food. Some are trying to get vital documents that were lost to the fires. Um, I also saw that there were more than 50 organizers that were there to help. You got the churches, you got the lawyers, um, the interpreters, barbers, healthcare providers, social services, and I even saw some gover- uh, government officials. Um, I saw and spoke to Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke, Jill Takuda was there, Representative Sonny Ganadin, Mayor Bisson, and even uh, Gil Keith Agaron was also there. He's um, with the, the Toulon group. Um, so seeing these folks, um, it was a little bit heavy, but at the same time, like people are more willing to share their stories. I saw some kids that they were getting um, getting stickers, so there was some return to normalcy. Um, and at the front of Lahaina Civic Center, other than people applying for their passports, um, people were also um, providing translation services. So it's mostly, I've spoke to folks who were um, nurses, um, folks who also were not registered as translators, but they're there to uh, volunteer their services to speak Ilocano and Tagalog. And surprisingly, most of the folks who were there, um, they have um, ancestors tracing back to Pangasinan, which is in uh, the Ilocos region, uh, region of the Philippines. So it was a really good event. And you had mentioned earlier before uh, we, we, we talked that there were people giving haircuts. There <laughs> were people giving haircuts. Um, so four barbers were there. Uh-huh. I spoke um, out of the four barbers. Uh, one of them came from Oahu, from Eva, and she was just there to help out. And out of the other three barbers, uh, they're all from Lahaina. They all went to Lahaina Luna High School. Um, two barbers had their houses burned down. One of them... Um, his house was still standing, but it's not clear when he can go back. I mean, just like everyone else in Lahaina, they don't know when they can go back yeah. home, if it's safe, or w- they don't know when their houses are going to be rebuilt. Yeah, but that was nice that they made that gesture to cut people's hair, you know, in a time of need. And right next to the barber area, people were also getting massages as well. Um, so there were some type of in a way, mental health services to kind of help the community return to normalcy. What I also, who I also spoke to was Liza Gill. Uh, Liza Ryan Gill, um, she helps coordinate with the Hawaii Coalition of Immigrant Rights. And what she's been hearing on the ground on Maui is that there's a need for more of a coordinated response in terms of providing translations in every needed languages. And uh, in Lahaina, that's including Ilocano, Tagalog, Spanish, Marshallese, and, and Thongan. I think it's challenging, right? You know, um, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And the, the problem is, is that we didn't have a plan for how we would respond in an emergency with language access. And folks are really trying hard now, but it's hard to go back in time and, and remedy those solutions. So we are working with the state. We've been thankful that the Office of Community Service has been supporting us to help set up a temporary immigrant resource center on Maui and to get up our multilingual hotline so you can call in six days a week and get support in Marshallese, Chukis, Spanish, Ilocano, Tagalog, and Tongan with a live interpreter on the line. But these issues are systemic and we need the policy to change because this is just like when the governor gets up and speaks and there's a sign language interpreter, it is also civil rights law under Title VI that there needs to be language access. And for our communities, and specifically for Lahaina, that was a lot of Spanish, that's a lot of Ilocano, Tagalog, and other Micronesian languages, and, and, and Pacific Islander languages. And 
we're working hard to remedy that, but what we needed was a plan. So other issues that were coming about is we've been hearing the October 8th date to reopen Lahaina to, to tourists. And when I've been talking to some of the community members at the event, there's been these mixed reactions. Some, some community members from Lahaina are saying that they understand we need to get back to work, we need some type of normalcy. But on the other hand, some other folks are saying this is a little insensitive. We can't even return to our homes, yet tourists are going to come here. But th it's just a mixture of reactions. So um, some people are saying they understand, and some people saying it's a little bit too soon. Um, other folks I talked to um, from the community event, um, a lot of folks were actually homeowners. And what they're worried about is they have a three-month hold um, whenever they let their banks know uh, to pay their, their monthly mortgage. But after the three months, it's not clear um, if they're going to have to keep paying for a home that's no longer standing. So that's one of the concerns I've been hearing as well. Um, and going back to the barbers, um, some of the barbers that were volunteering, um, one was from Oahu, and one barber, um, even though his home has, is still standing, um, he just wants to go back home. Uh, he was trying to make sure his dogs are okay. One of his dogs, like, it w he got a little burned from the fire, escaping the fire. His back was a little bit charred, but his dogs are fine now. Uh, but he said it was nice to see the community again and he saw some of his neighbors that he didn't know that were still alive and it was just nice to like give uncle a nice haircut i saw some uncles they were crying a little bit so it was it w he said it was nice to actually give haircuts again personally i feel good giving back um you know i felt bad for survival's guilt for a while knowing that i should have helped out a lot more on the day of but now that i know i'm helping out the community in some sort of way it makes me feel a lot better about know about myself as well making sure I'm you know staying busy helping out where I can where I'm useful and it makes me feel better knowing that you know people are feeling relief because nobody's really thinking about getting a haircut especially in times like this and just to know that you know you can hang out and sit down and just relax and, and make sure you're, you're getting groomed up that's always a, a good feeling in everybody's heart they told me that this was the most haircuts that they've ever <laughs> given to people. Well, it's, I think it's just a healing event, right? Like we heard them say it was just nice to, to see their neighbors. And I also got to speak with one of their clients who just got their haircut. And um, he said that his house was burned. Um, it's called Zone 4. That's where his house was located. It's completely destroyed is what he told me. He also told me he's looking for his cats. He has 10 of them. So far, he's found only two. But one had he had to put to sleep because she sustained se severe burns and he's looking for the remaining eight and since the fire it's been taking a toll on his mental health sometimes it triggers our phobia if we hear um the fire truck sound going off it triggers again we get uh it triggers our you know it's like ptsd kind of thing we go through a lot of stress so instead of just relaxing, we have to go through all this kind. We lost all our passports, citizenship, um, birth certificates, everything. Everything. Yeah, a big loss. But yeah, hopefully this event was a way to heal. And um, a lot of the community members are hoping they can get more mental health services in the future. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. That was HBR's Cassie Hordonio, who was on Maui this past weekend for a fair reaching out to the Filipino community. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to a panel of experts and men who have had this condition to learn more about the firsthand experience in part one of our series on prostate cancer. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from the Arne and Ruth Werchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arne and Ruth Werchick Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Library's Kona at folkhawaii.com.
ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, was there at the Saturday fair. The union represents 2,700 members, about half who live in West Maui. Historically, the union's workers used to be those who worked on the plantations, but when that shut down, then turned to the hospitality industry. We talked to Chris West about how the union is working with Unite Here Local 5, an unusual move underscoring the crisis of the Maui fires. So we have 2,700 members that work in West Maui, 1,750 of which live there or lived, and 300 pensioners. And so how many people were affected by this fire? You know, how many lost their homes? What can you tell us? Well, I believe those that were directly affected by the fire as far as housing is roughly in between 15 to 1,600. That's a huge number for a union. Yes. And so how are you uh, uh, helping uh, your members during this time? From the very beginning, obviously, we're the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. So our longshore, who, um, you know, we um, specialize in the supply chain, started um, getting boxes donated from the West Coast, started filling up our own boxes here, did a supply drive about four days after the fire. And then we're able to collaborate with the shipping and trucking companies to begin getting containers over to the community hubs there in Lahaina. Well, actually, more specifically, and you know, West Maui, Kahana, and on that side, Kahanapali. So we were helping get supplies there, you know, for our members and the community. And then about four days after the fire, West Maui was still closed, but we were able to get a legal team in to help our members with legal um, questions and issues. Um, that range anywhere from insurance claims on their homes to their cars, to answering questions about FEMA and Red Cross, because there was a lot of misinformation that was flowing in the first, you know, well, it's still flowing, but it was flowing re- very heavily within the first, you know, three to four days. And so we wanted to make sure that we could get, you know, some truth to our members. So we brought in our legal team and offered some, some pro bono work through them. So we've been working on multiple fronts as far as addressing the needs of our members, but uh, I, I would be lying if I said we knew exactly what we were doing when we first came in. We just we just knew that not doing anything was the worst thing. And as the days have progressed, we've gotten a little bit better with organizing our members, creating community leaders, and um, trying to get our different ethnicities of members together so that they can work together in this. And, just like the LW has in the past, get our different ethnicities working together in order to succeed. So that's basically what we've been doing you know, over the last six weeks or so. And you have been talking with Local 5 because the hotel industry is, is key right now to Maui's economy. Yes. You know, so even though um, technically, you know, one could see us as competing unions, you know, our approach and as well as Eric Gills and now Cade's has always been that we're we're working together for labor and that you know we succeed together or we fail together and and if we're going to work together our members have a better chance at succeeding so we've been doing that you know from the beginning of my term which started about a year and a half ago and it's been awesome and we definitely have been able to help each other's members by brainstorming with each other and looking at ways that we can face this crisis together um, versus separate we had a, a very a great meeting with um, the leadership at Local 5 and started, you know, throwing out ideas and, and brainstorming on ways that we can not only help our members, but the community of, of Lahaina. It's, the effort is not just member-centric, um, it's community-driven. So it's been good. It's been really good. And, and the, the leadership there is very open and, and um, so are we. So I believe we're going to be able to do some good things for the community. Now, Jerry Gibson of the Hotel Alliance expressed some concern about the workforce leaving the island if we don't get this economy going because he doesn't want a double whammy with the economic disaster. Uh, and, you know, things are going to be opening up in October. I've already seen some, you know, advertising from Hawaiian Airlines offering discounted rates for uh travelers to go to Maui uh, from Oahu or from other islands. So it really sounds like you are all pulling together for the future here. Well, we definitely feel that the fires could just be the start of continued crisis um, when it comes to having economic stability. So, yes, we have discussed with with the other um, union as well, and, and we share the concern of economic stability in Maui. 
And, um, you know, for us, of course, the latest statistics were released on, and I'm just going to speak on, on one ethnicity, and that's the Hawaiians, Native Hawaiians. It was confirmed and, and reported that you know, there's more Native Hawaiians that live outside the state than in it. And the continued migration of generationally rooted local families, you know, are continuing to move, you know, to, to Vegas and Washington and Arizona, everywhere but Hawaii. And and for those that move because they choose to, or you know, because they want something different, then then I I support and I I hope the best for them. It's the ones that are forced to leave that would rather be here and would rather raise their families in Hawaii but can no longer afford it. That's our greatest fear as a union, and it's keeping local families working in Hawaii so that they can raise their children where they choose to. So there's definitely a concern for us, the amount of local families that are being forced to leave the state. And we're in a situation right now where we have temporary housing, in those very hotel rooms that a lot of your your members work at, but that's just temporary. And then we've got to figure out where do they go to when the money runs out for the hotel rooms, and will there be enough housing, whether it's in vacation rentals, or can we get other types of housing up? And then we've got to look at rebuilding Lahaina. Yeah, 100%. A tragedy of this nature, we had anything the closest thing since was Hurricane Iniki, which also impacted the LW really hard as well. But I definitely feel that there's a big effort, collaborative effort between our government, the hotels, the unions, the community to make sure that we don't lose focus on not only short-term housing, right? So some of the numbers that we've heard is 18 months, whether it being a hotel room or in an Airbnb or whatnot. But when we look at that, in my opinion, it's just a band-aid. Right. What is the real root of the of um, you know the problem, and that's it always has been for a very long time is is having affordable housing here in Hawaii, and not only rentals. We're talking the ability for our families and our children and and you know, to be able to, to afford a home here in Hawaii to stay here, not not just rent. So that's definitely something that I'm hoping through this tragedy can be a bright spot at the end that we actually begin to solve that problem of having you know, affordable housing for local families. Maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure, but I can guarantee you that a lot of our effort will be, you know, as a union, will be focused in getting workplace housing. We've taken part in, in almost every um, community outreach, but as far as reaching out to the, to the Filipino community, that was really difficult because you know, the Filipino community or the culture tends to not want to ask for help and, and is very you know, quiet and not not allowed. You know, a lot of times it, uh, the squeaky wheel gets to grease. And, and in this case, um, the humility that our Filipino community has makes it difficult sometimes for them to get the help that they, that they deserve. So we've been putting a lot of effort into um, outreach within that community um, to the point where we've actually physically called, you know, all of our members in Lahaina area that lived in Lahaina area mm-hmm. just to ask them where they are, you know, what kind of support they need. And the majority of those are, are Filipino workers. So the ones we didn't get a hold of, we're trying to make sure that we're available for them, whatever whatever outreach programs we can. So, Do you know how many of your members or, or, or the retirees uh, lost their homes? With the you know, exact we haven't numbers? had a final count because we're still finding okay. out. You know, I mean, they're still identifying people every day right but we you know we don't have a total number but we know that we have some of our members as well as our pensioners that were casualties to the fire as far as how many actual specifically lost their home um, we don't have that count but if i'm going to be a realist it's going to probably have been a lot of people those numbers are as they're revealing themselves you know um, daily in the news there it's happening for us too you know our members are are amazing and, and they're they're so resilient and and um, I, I want to share, when we first got in there the first couple of, you know, days after the fire, you know, our members were obviously traumatized. We, we were able to meet with them in all the different hotels. The hotels have been um, partners through this, where normally we sit across the table from them. It was nice to sit on the same side, you know, facing this crisis together. And majority of them, if not all of them, came through and, and, and helped the community. But more importantly, as we visited, you know, our members there, the resiliency and the strength that Lahaina showed is so consistent with, I'm a wrestling coach, so I coached 
wrestling at Kamehameha Schools for 23 years. And whenever we wrestled Lahaina Luna, you could always see the fight, the resilience. Lahaina Luna football team was, you know, the pride. The pride in Lahaina it reminds me of like a Kahuku on Oahu. Yeah, Red Raiders. I think about when I think about Lahaina. And, wow. And that same fight, that same resiliency was all, all inspiring, you know, mm-hmm. the days after. And I continue to see that. And I'm just not surprised. I'm very proud of our members there and very proud of Lahaina and their strength. That was ILWU head Chris West, who recently took over the helmet, the union. He is meeting with Local 5 leader Kate Watanabe later today. Civil Beats lead story today looks at the split decisions that families fleeing Lahaina at the height of the fires had to make. It's a story by reporter Kirsten Downey and Civil Beats' Chad Blair joins us to talk about the story. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so heartbreaking. I mean, we heard little snippets of this early on, but she talked to a lot of people. Yeah, she sure did and and has been on the ground like a lot of the Civil Beat reporters and photographers. And what's interesting about this story, there's many things that are interesting, but basically normal rules did not apply once those fires started moving into Lahaina. And uh, at least for some people who decided that they had to get the heck out of town as soon as they could, particularly in the absence of any kind of you know government warning. Remember, there were problems with sirens or a lack of sirens, cell phone service and whatnot. Uh, and so people had to make, and this is the headline word, split-second decisions. I guess that's three words, actually. Uh, but Kirsten opens her story today about how one woman was out of the door of her, her house so quickly, she didn't put on shoes. She didn't have time to put on shoes. Uh, she, she did make it out. She and uh, two of her friends uh, took a car, and, and they, they are safe. By the way, she has found a pair of shoes. Someone has lent her. Um, and then really, uh, I guess there's other people that had to leave behind possessions. They had to walk away from their cars. They had to break traffic laws, um, maybe even defy the police in certain cases. Uh, and, and in many ways, that's probably what saved them. Yeah, I mean, when you have rules of the road and, you know, the road is in gridlock and you need to go. Wow. You just have to do what you need to do to survive. Right. And many did. The people that talked to Kirsten said, Look, some of them said they went the other way on a one-way road. They said, forget it. There's too much gridlock. We've reported recently about how people were directed into these very narrow roadways and couldn't get out of town. Some of them intentionally drove on the wrong side of the street. Some of them intentionally drove on sidewalks. There are reports from Kirsten's story about people even using their cars as sort of a battering ramp to you know, to push back obstacles, fences, and, and, and other barriers and then, of course, as we, we have heard from others, but fresh reporting, some jumped into the ocean, including uh, one person and his wife with four of their five dogs. That fifth dog was reluctant, didn't make it, but the other four dogs survived. Uh, and again, it's because they made these very quick split-second decisions. Yeah, I mean, you just don't know what you're going to do you know, if you're caught in a situation like this, life or death. Yeah, interestingly, uh, uh, Kirsten brings up a book called The Unthinkable. It's by Amanda Ripley. It's cited in the story. It's from 2009. And what it really uh, amounts to, and it fits perfectly into the Lahaina situation, is that it's your gut instincts that in many ways will determine whether you will survive a dangerous situation or you will not. It's not an unknown phenomenon. These kind of things, disasters happen all the time. But the things that you should avoid when there's danger uh, is procrastination, uh, doing nothing, or 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 be moving too slowly in the face of danger, is not good advice, and and that is what she's hearing from people. Now, mind you, there are people that simply were overwhelmed by the terrifying condition of the fires. Some of them had little control over the circumstances, and you think about people with limited mobility, people that perhaps age-related disabilities, and there's nothing they probably could have done in so many ways. But uh, this idea that follow your gut to get you out 
of danger is a, a compelling idea, and it really appears to be a factor for saving at least some of the survivors out of Lahaina. Yeah, and when you know that that uh, many uh, died in their cars, I I know mm. there was uh, the Bishop Museum historian who said we need to have a museum and we need to put some of those burnt out cars because that's all part of the story of, about Lahaina and what happened that day. Yeah, some of the survivors who did talk to Kirsten actually said they looked around and some of the people around them, including in those cars, they just seemed to panic. They were frozen. They, they didn't know what to do. That's particularly, that's completely understandable. Uh, but as uh, one national expert said in the story, you know, when it comes down to survival, sometimes you really do just have to do what you need to do to survive. That includes breaking the law, uh, acting very quickly, following your gut instincts. And I think that's the the main takeaway from the story. Kirsten, by the way, is uh, still reporting on Lahaina. More stories coming from her. And of course, this story will be the biggest story in Hawaii for some time to come. Yeah. And I, I just remember that first day and I couldn't figure out why did people go in the water? Yeah. And then, you know, but of course, we didn't know in those early days how many people had died. So, yeah, yeah it, it uh, you never know what you're going to do when you're faced in that situation. But boy, there's so many stories out there. Uh, and, and by the way, that water was cold for a lot of people, and there were waves. That's how how desperate they were to get out of the fires as they jumped in that water. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes, tragic story all around. But thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read Kirsten's uh, Downing story at civilbeat.org. Customers of the Honolulu Board of Water Supply used less water this year. Chief Engineer Ernie Lau would like to think that the Red Hill fuel contamination of our drinking water has made people more mindful about not wasting our precious resource. But you know what? As the weather got warmer, our use is ticking up. We talked to Lau this morning about what's ahead, higher rate hikes and the draining of the military's underground fuel tanks. I use uh, Punchpole as a guide, guidance for the Honolulu area. When Punchpole and Diamond Head get kind of brown, then I know things are drying, drying up. But uh, last uh, three months, it's been below average rainfall, so that's I think the reason why demand is uh, creeping up. We do, as we you know, we're still in summer, and uh, the Weather Service is projecting a drier than normal conditions all the way up to maybe uh, March or April of next year. So we ask our all our all of our customers. Uh, to conserve water and use it wisely. Uh, don't waste it. Just only use what you absolutely need. So things are, are ticking up, and we just have to be more aware, not just of water use. But, you know, obviously with the Lahaina fires, the brown patches everywhere is, is a little disconcerting. Uh, yeah, that you know, this is uh, kind of seasonal. Every summer we get into dry weather, and, and the vegetation kind of dries up. But... Uh, I think that, you know, uh, most of the state of Hawaii, according to the National Weather Service, is uh, like in uh, some type of drought condition. Uh, that includes Oahu, too. So we, everybody needs to be careful. Conserve water, but also um, be careful when you go out and about uh, hiking or into the wilderness areas, and please don't start any fires inadvertently. So I know that we have had, uh, what is it, an average of like a what, one water break a, a day, is that right? R refresh uh, my yeah, memory. You're still running at about a, a break a day, uh, 350 or so breaks a year. But we've made a lot of investment in our water system through our capital improvement program, which has really expanded. It's, you know, uh, over $150 million a year. Sometimes it's over $200 million a year. And um, since the last rate increase, uh, which was uh, began in 2018, we have about 500 projects in process or completed almost three quarters of a billion dollars of investment in our infrastructure. So we have to continue to do that. 
And we have another proposed schedule of rate hikes? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we do. We're uh, right now going out since actually July, we started to do outreach around the community to uh, share the proposed water rate increases. I want to say it's proposed because the water board is the entity of the body that would make the final decision on adoption of rates. And this will be done through a very public process through a public uh, after a public hearing. But the rate proposal is out and we've been uh, busily meeting, uh, reaching to different neighborhood boards or different organizations around the community. Right, and there are double-digit increases. Uh, share with our listeners what you hope to collect with these proposed hikes and where that money will go. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to start off with why uh, these uh, rate increases are necessary. You know, the Board of Water Supply has been around since 1929, and our sole responsibility is to maintain the, the massive water system infrastructure that supplies on our community almost a million people every day with safe drinking water. You know, this involves you know, like 2,100 miles of water mains, almost 100 different uh, water well pumping stations, water sources all over the island, uh, over 20,000 fire hydrants, and we serve 170,000 customer accounts through uh, water meters. All this infrastructure, including taking care of the resource itself, the watershed areas, and trying to control invasives there, is paid through our uh, what revenue we collect from our rate payers. Our, our customers paying their water bill helps to pay for all of this. So it's important that we continue to uh, uh, take care of this and malama uh, this infrastructure and this resource uh, for our community. So the um, proposal that we're looking at, and we. We've also, you know, had challenges with the pandemic, uh, the impacts of the pandemic that affected everybody across the, the entire planet. But it also created some economic uh, uncertainties, in, especially in the area of inflation. So we saw that based on the last rate increase, we made assumptions and projections on what the inflation rate might be at. But then the because of the pandemic, I think that's kind of blown through that and it's much higher. So. We're operating uh, with less revenue than we had uh, than we actually need to operate the water system, and what we're doing is economizing and tightening our belt. But we're at the point where we need to uh, get more revenue to continue to operate this massive water system. We've also had issues with power, cost of power, and like everybody else, you know, your electric bill went up because of the cost of fuel. We're still dependent on fossil fuels, so for the board of water supply. Last year, our cost was 20% of our budget for an additional $5 million. So our total electricity bill to provide the service to our community was about $33 million for last fiscal year. You know, we continue to have these same challenges, and then, you know, Red Hill adds to the complication and challenges. Also, uh, what the EPA is proposing to do is regulate PFAS chemicals, those forever chemicals. There is uncertainty in what uh, type of uh, treatment systems we may need in the future to address that. And you have already and, uh, started testing for those forever chemicals uh, in our oh, water system. We started back in 2020 and more frequently uh, just the last uh, year or so. And we're, we found it so far in eight of our well stations, uh, eight of our wells, actually on the leeward side. And we're continuing to check uh, for these PFAS chemicals. We're also trying to identify potential sources of PFAS contamination, you know, wherever there was a use of AFFF or aqueous film forming foam, firefighting foam, or other chemicals that might have contained PFAS, you know, where are those potential places where they applied this or trained with it, and see what testing of the groundwater has occurred in those areas. So does the proposed hike schedule, the rate schedule, take uh, into account the PFAS issues, or is it just strictly maintaining those aging pipes? It's a combination. Right, right now, it's uh, uh, not only PFAS, but also the Red Hill situation. Uh, so our projected uh, capital improvement program for the next five years, actually about the next six years, looks at, uh, I'll just give you a kind of a high-level breakdown, about $425 million invested into new pipelines, new and replacement pipelines, and about $399 million in the area of monitor wells, also developing new water sources for our system. It includes also $97 million for additional water storage in the latter part of the program in the Wyava area. So in total, 
What we're looking at is over $1 billion of infrastructure improvements that we need to make in our water system, uh, addressing uh, the needs of our community, also the Red Hill challenges that we're facing, and also the, you know, uh, it may, it doesn't fully uh, reflect the PFAS. Uh, that's still at an emerging issue for us, but we'll see where that goes in the next few years. And that was Ernie Lau, Honolulu Board of Water Supply Manager and Chief Engineer, talking about the billion dollars in maintenance work that needs to be done over the next five or six years. We will continue our conversation with Lau uh, to talk about the draining of the more than 100 million gallons of fuel at Red Hill right after a short break. Support for HPR comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Vasavi Kumar, author of Say It Out Loud. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about using the power of your voice to reframe negative self-talk. Sunday at 11. Support for HPR comes from Beach Tree Restaurant, located oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort Hualalai, serving lunch and dinner. Chef Giuliano features fresh seafood and daily handcrafted pastas and pizzas with nightly live acoustic entertainment. In just a few weeks, the military will undertake the draining of more than a million gallons of diesel and jet fuel from underground tanks at Red Hill. The decision to shut down the World War II-era facility was triggered by the leak of jet fuel that ended up in the drinking water of thousands of families in military housing as well as businesses in the area. Lau said after years of stonewalling on release of information on the facility, there is better communication since the Joint Task Force Red Hill took over last year. Here's Lau sharing his concerns as we get into this very critical operation. They've tried to uh, really stay in touch and uh, communicate with us on, uh, on the progress toward defueling. More information to come, I think, on the area of permanent closure of the facility. But I must say that things are much better than it used to be before. You know, I want them to be completely successful in draining the 104 million gallons of diesel and jet fuel out of those underground World War II tanks and pipelines. So I, I think they're on track right now to start the middle of October, just around the corner here. They're keeping close communication with us. So has the uh, regulators, the EPA, and the Department of Health. I think things are much improved than it was before. And you're talking about dealing with the Red Hill task force? Yeah, actually there's uh, there's different components here. There's the joint task force led by Vice Admiral Wade and uh, his set number two is uh, Brigadier General Michelle Link. So we stay in regular communication with them. They've invited me to join this information sharing forum, which we had uh, meetings, I think it was almost every other month on uh, progress on, on defueling. So that's been uh, good communication for us, keeping us informed. And we've been able to express you know, some of our suggestions or concerns, and, you know, they've been very open to our suggestions. We did see the uh, Island Energy uh, Company open up those additional tanks, which will be used, you know, for some of that fuel. But have you been involved in all or invited to observe any of the drills? You know, I know they've done tabletop drills, and I think they've actually been out in the field, but, you know, have you been invited to observe any of those? No, I haven't. I understand the Department of Health and EPA have had representatives there when they were doing those drills. Uh, I'm not sure all the time, but uh, quite frequently. So the short answer is no, we haven't actually been invited to be there in the tunnel watching the drills go on. 
And then when we did do the repacking, you know, uh, I think there was an issue that we understand has been dealt with. So whether if it was a, a leak, I don't know. Have you gotten official word on exactly w- what happened there? The little information that was shared with me that was a very small kind of a drip or a, a small leak that was co- entirely contained. Uh, this is coming, you know, from Admiral Wade, Vice Admiral Wade. They seem to have handled it and are proceeding carefully. So the repacking was an important first step to fill the two pipelines with fuel so then they uh, can begin the gravity draining um, in October. And so was that just a a weld or was it a a valve that wasn't quite closed? I I don't know the full details. That's a good question for uh, General Link when you have her in your program. Okay, well, we'll follow up with that. Are there any other aspects of the draining that you folks are concerned about? I mean, we obviously don't want a repeat of the fuel in anyone's drinking water. I pray uh, daily uh, that Keakua would guide them and that there would be no any mishaps in this process, that they would be 100% successful in the gravity draining, which is going to get most of the fuel but not all the fuel out. And uh, I'm just praying that they'll be completely successful. I think it's important for all of us that they, that they are. The last remaining amount of fuel that's there, whether it's 100,000 or or up to maybe 400,000, whatever the number is, I really still strongly encourage them to get that out of there as soon as possible too. Don't wait uh, three years or more to do that. Get it out sooner than later. And I know the military's efforts with this draining of the tanks is focused on fuel spills, but what assurances do you have that there won't be any kind of a fire? All I have is, you know, what we've seen in the media and what they've explained is the drills they're taking with uh, folks dedicated to provide uh, fire protection or response, you know, 24-7 out there at the Red Hill. And I pray that there is no fire incidents there because, you know, I've been in that tunnel system many times and it's not a very big space. It's very confined and a fire there would be uh, not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it would be disastrous for the military personnel that would be there, uh, you know, observing this process. So I encourage them, you know, and they've been open and sharing some information about what they're doing in terms of training and preparation. And, um, you know, I've encouraged them to uh, make sure, you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And also to reach out to the local emergency management agencies, you know, at the city or federal level and make sure that they're all fully briefed on uh, this operation should and and, uh, hopefully it won't happen if there is an incident that everybody is ready, has have been doing the planning and are ready to uh, respond appropriately to protect our community and our environment. Yeah, I mean, the last thing we need is a catastrophic event. Let's pray nothing happens. Try to stay positive on this, but, you know, I know we have to be ready for the worst, so they dare, and I encourage them to be ready for the worst case, and I, they've identified what the worst case is, but I pray that not, that doesn't happen at, at all. Have they shared that worst case scenario with you? They have. The information sharing forum, it is something that you, you should talk to uh, General Link about, too, but basically, I think it, I think tank number 20 contains the most fuel uh, that's in in any of the tanks. You know, there are about 14 of the 20 tanks, from what I understand, that still have different varying amounts of fuel in them. And tank 20 is the one with, uh, I think, over 10 million gallons in it. So the worst case was a potential spill that drained the entire 10 million gallons out of that tank. And that's Um, at the very end. And that's the very top of the tank farm there, furthest Malka. So... Again, you know, I want to stress prayers are important right now, uh, that their hands are guided, that nothing happens here, that all that fuel gets taken out of those tanks and transported uh, to areas that won't endanger our environment or our water resources, most importantly for, for the board of water supply in our community. Visually, I'm just trying to understand, you know, how this all works. If they're going to start out slow first, I'm just wondering about the pressure buildup in the system and hopefully that all those repairs, the 254 repairs, were all done properly and they're sound and are going to hold. I don't know uh, what other fortifications they may have had to make down there by a hotel pier. 
where we've had leaks before. So while that wouldn't maybe be a threat to the aquifer, it would be a threat uh, to the ocean and the marine life there. Right. So those are good questions for Michelle. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have that information. Well, are you going to get <laughs> some sleep before? I don't know. I, I, I don't know how long the process will take. I know they have estimations, but I don't know. When are you going to be able to exhale when they start this process? When they finish in January, hopefully, uh, mid-January at the latest, I can breathe a sigh of relief, but there's still going to be a smaller amount, maybe even 100,000 gallons still someplace in that facility. When every drop is out, then I think I can breathe the final sigh of relief. But then we have the issue of cleanup, because this facility has been around for 80 years, and it's had a history of leaks you know, over the 80 years. And where has that fuel gone? Fuel of different types over the 80 years. It's out in the environment, and you know, after the November 2021 incident, we saw that both some of the older fuels start to spread out and also the newer jet fuels and diesel spread out in the underground aquifer and move someplace. So the question is, where has it moved? Where can, is it moving? Can it be cleaned up or remediated? And you know, can we keep it away from our border water supply wells or other private or Navy wells too in the area? Yeah, lots of unknowns, uh, but definitely the conversation has to keep going on who ultimately helps to clean up the residuals. Yeah, I, I, you know, I thank you, uh, Catherine, because you know, keeping awareness of this uh, issue is very important for our community, and it's something that's not going to go away uh, soon. It'll be around with us, especially on the cleanup, uh, the investigation cleanup. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time. That was Ernie Lau, chief engineer of the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, talking to us about the draining of the Red Hill facility, which happens in about three weeks. He also talked with us earlier about the proposed water rate hike to fix our aging system. Look for links about that on our website later today. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Recent headlines about carbon discovered on the surface of Jupiter's moon Europa raises the possibility of life in space. We learn more in Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive and fascinating universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we may be able to spot in our skies here in the islands. Thanks to astronomer Christopher Phillips. We should have him on the line right now. Chris, welcome back. What's going on this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the evening skies. Both planets are visible after sunset and can be seen in the south and southwestern portions of the sky. The moon this week will be passing through its full moon phase, so stargazing for faint stars, galaxies, and meteors will be very challenging indeed. And a topic that certainly permeates our discussions here on Stargazer, and many for people who are fans of uh, thinking about the beyond, the concepts of life outside of uh, Earth. And I understand you've got a little something-something on some scientific research relating to a potential water world of some kind, maybe even in our own solar system? I do indeed. So last week saw the announcement of carbon dioxide and methane on a distant exoplanet known as K218b. This has raised the exciting possibility of K218b being a potentially habitable world, perhaps with an ocean on its surface. However, there was also a very exciting discovery concerning a water world a little closer to home, Jupiter's moon Europa, where the James Webb Space Telescope has confirmed the existence of carbon dioxide on the moon's icy surface. So carbon's everywhere in the universe. What makes this one such a discovery? Well, normally we wouldn't get excited by the discovery of carbon because, as you mentioned, it's all over the place. But it's the context of this discovery that makes it exciting. 
Carbon is necessary for life. Life is made of a diverse collection of elements, and key among them is, of course, our good old friend, carbon. We talking about life in the oceans of Europa, Christopher? Well, it doesn't confirm the presence of life, but it does raise the probability substantially. So if uh, carbon dioxide's coming from the ocean, could be more exciting kinds of molecules down there. So I'm thinking instead of our usual sea monkeys, we're thinking more like Loch Ness Monster might be there? <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far just yet. Let's start simple. <laughs> but the more diverse elements we find, the more compelling the case for exploring these oceans to confirm once and for all if Europa has life of its own. But uh, for now, getting there and under the ice, little bit of a challenge, right? Oh, yeah, to say the least. Exploring Europa requires not only getting there, which would take a spacecraft years, but also you need any probe to be able to operate independently once there because the transmission delay to Jupiter can be anything up to an hour. That's a long way to send instructions. So any probe will have to have some sort of rudimentary AI because phoning home takes way too long. Or a whole lot of patience. <laughs> or a whole lot of patience. <laughs> <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips and another fun Stargazer. Thank you, brother. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Kohala High School STEM and Science Facility on Hawaii Island, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. are all out of time, but we want to let you know that tomorrow we do plan to talk to Army Brigadier General Michelle Link, the number two in charge of the Joint Task Force Red Hill. We hope to learn more about the repacking process and the work that still will be done before the underground fuel tanks are drained. Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217 to share your concerns. You can find the conversation as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, or on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.